Lord, I do ask that you right now by your spirit would speak to us, that you'd enlighten us. And Lord, even as Pete was, was praying, God, that you would take our minds and hearts and unite them with yours. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week we began this study in the book of 1 Corinthians, and we began by looking at the scene in Acts chapter 18, where we saw how this church in Corinth got started. And you recall, Paul comes to Corinth, and as he always does, he goes to the synagogue and begins teaching with the Jews, talking with the Jews about Jesus, and they just don't want to have anything to do with what Paul is talking about, and so they reject his message, and so Paul's like, okay, I'll go to the Gentiles. That's sort of Paul's mode of operation in the book of Acts when he goes into one city, and so there's a guy named Justice who um, actually lives right next door to the synagogue, and he says you know, to Paul, hey dude, actually he didn't say dude, but he probably said, you know, hey you, um, you know, why don't you come over here, and you you can come and you can preach here, and Paul does that, and people start getting saved, including a guy by the name of Crispus. And Crispus was the ruler of the synagogue. So he's like the head elder of the synagogue, and he gets saved. And he's, you know, he's not going to the synagogue. Now he's going to this Bible study that Paul's teaching right next door to the synagogue. And and I don't know if it was because of, you know, his conversion that he quit or um, he they got rid of him, but later on in the chapter, we see there's another guy who's now the ruler of the synagogue. But as, popu- as, as the message is going forth and God is moving and, and working and, and Paul's you know, popularity starts to, to grow there in the city, so does his anxiety. Has that ever happened to you? Where you find yourself in a place where just things are going good and God's moving and he's working and you start thinking, you know, about things that are going to go wrong. You know, what if this happens? What if that happens? And, and that's sort of what happens to Paul because that's sort of been the... Um, pattern that Paul has seen. He goes into a city, he preaches to the uh, gent- or the Jews, they reject him, he goes to the Gentiles, they get saved, the Jews get mad, they riot, you know, they beat Paul, they, they throw him into prison. So Paul is getting, you know, in- anxious. He's starting to anticipate, you know, what's going to happen. And, and it says there in Acts chapter 18, verse 9, that the Lord spoke to Paul in the night by a vision. And said to him, do not be afraid, but speak. And do not keep silent. The Lord says to Paul, Paul, don't be afraid and don't be afraid to speak. Because that's what Paul was starting to think. Like, maybe I shouldn't be doing this. Maybe I should stop talking about Jesus. And Jesus is like, no, don't do that. Don't stop. Don't be afraid to speak. And for then the Lord says to him in verse 10, Acts 18, I'm reading from, it should be on the screen. For I am with you and no one will attack you to hurt you, for I have many people in this city. And the idea was, the Lord was saying, look, Paul, there's a lot of people here that don't know me yet, but I know them. And I'm working right now on their hearts and they just need to hear your message so you preach. And Paul was encouraged by that word and this was the result of it. Verse 11 of Acts 18 says, and he continued there a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. And the Lord did this great work there in Corinth and this solid church is formed in that city and it was a city that was plagued with immorality. I mean, it was a very, very vile and wicked place, but God was doing a great work there. And Corinth wasn't just a wicked place, it was also an important city in the Roman Empire. It was an important important city of Greece, the actual capital of the Roman province of that area, and it was ideally located on a trade route, and so all the trade that was going east and west came through the city of Corinth. It was also fourth in size to the great cities in the Roman Empire. So a very very strategic place that Paul goes to to begin, you know, to preach the gospel. Well, after his ministry in Corinth, Paul stays there um, 18 months, a year and a half, and then he ends up going to Ephesus, where he stays for three years. He's pastoring in Ephesus, and while in Ephesus, Paul receives a letter 
from the believers in Corinth. Now, they didn't have mail service like we do today. So, you know, the letter wasn't carried by a post office worker. It was carried by someone from the church. And so they come to Ephesus and they give Paul this letter. And the letter had some questions in it that the people in Corinth had about, you know, doctrine and church practices. And so they were asking, you know, Paul. But the people that brought the letter tell Paul, you know, there's also a lot of problems going on there. There's some issues with this church. Things, things are not right. So 1 Corinthians is Paul's letter that is meant to answer some of these questions as well as to deal with their problems. And the first problem that he's going to deal with is the problem of division. But before we look at that, I want to just read once again the verses that we looked at last week, beginning in verse 4, as Paul gives his, this description. There's how he opens up, like he's sharing, hey, this is his heart about this body of believers He says, I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given to you by Christ Jesus, that you were enriched in everything by him in all utterance and all knowledge, even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you, so that you come short in no gift, eagerly waiting for the revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ, who will also confirm you to the end that you may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. So here's how Paul describes this church. He says, you guys are, were enriched in everything. In other words, man, you guys have been really, really blessed. They had a good testimony amongst the people there. They're, they're abounding in the gifts, the gifts of the Holy Spirit, and they're eagerly waiting for the Lord's return. Sounds like a great church, right? I mean, it's like the kind of church, like, man, it's the kind of church I want to be a part of. I mean, those guys sound like they have it going on. But in actuality, it was also a church with a lot of problems. You see, Corinth, listen to me, is a good example. It's a good example of how a church that starts off right can get twisted when it loses sight of what's supposed to be the main thing. And that's what happens in Corinth. They start majoring on minor issues and they get their eyes off of the Lord. And any church that does that is going to have problems. But, but in reality, every church is going to have problems. You know why? Because it's filled with sinners. Just turn to the person next to you and say, you're a sinner. <laughs> I know you've always wanted to say that to your husband, right? Um, But no, in reality, we are. We're all all sinners. And because of that, um, we're not perfect. And so the church isn't perfect. But here's what I want you to understand, and this blesses my heart. The letter to the church in Corinth, it teaches us And it illustrates for us that the Lord doesn't discard his church when it has problems. Because the whole point of this letter is Paul is writing to address these problems, to deal with these problems, to help this church that had gotten off track to get right. And we see another example of this in uh, the book of Revelation, in the seven letters to the churches that Jesus writes. I mean, here's seven churches, and six of the seven have some major problems. And what is the Lord doing? He's not writing to say, I'm done with you, but he's writing to say, hey, you guys need to fix this. Because that's always the heart of the Lord. So problem number one we're going to deal with tonight is that of division. Verse 10, he says, Now I plead with you, brethren, By the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak. Circle that word speak if you like to uh, write in your Bible. That you all speak the same thing and that there be no divisions. You can circle that word as well. No divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. For it has been declared to me concerning you, my brethren, by those of Chloe's household, that there are contentions, circle that word contentions, among you. Now I say this, that each of you says, I am of Paul, or I am of Apollos, or I am of Cephas, that's Peter, or I am of Christ. 
Paul says, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? Let me have your attention. The problem with the church in Corinth is that they had lost sight of the main thing and they had become focused on men instead of Jesus. Some were focused on Paul. Now, Paul was the great apostle. He was a great church planner. He was a great missionary. And Paul, no doubt, had his fan club. Those, those who you know, felt like, hey, there ought to be more of that going on. We should be more missions-minded. We should be more into church planting. And so there were those who were kind of like championing Paul. And then there was others. They were into this guy by the name of Apollos. Now, Apollos was this guy who had a great intellect, he was a great orator. He was really, you know, well-versed in the scriptures and just this really, really, you know, kind of intellectual. Today, he might, be, might have been kind of an apologist type of guy, you know, and talking about, you know, how the Bible came together and the importance of, of understanding creation and all of that. And those who were into that type of thing, they'd be like, you know, Apollos, he's our guy. We need more of that in the church. We need more of that kind of teaching, you know, more of, you know, we we need to get into apologetics and really studying what we believe and why and that sort of thing. And then there were those who were into Peter. And it seems like when we read of Peter in the book of Acts that every time Peter preaches, the Holy Spirit falls. You know, it's like the Holy Spirit gets poured out when Peter preaches. And so there's this major outpouring of the Spirit. And no doubt there were those in the church that were like, that's what we need more of. We need more of the Holy Spirit moving around here. And then there was the ultra spiritual group. And they were like, you know, we're not into any of those guys. We're not into Paul or Paulos or Peter. In fact, we don't even need the church. We're the Jesus only group of guys, you know, and that was their thing. And that's kind of the idea that they were saying, you know, we're just into Jesus. We don't even need the rest of you type of thing. And this was the issue. The church had become egocentric. What does that mean? Well, being egocentric is when you think only of yourself, your needs, your preferences. And to that point, Paul says this, is Christ divided is Christ divided? And the answer is no. So he's saying, Jesus isn't divided, so why are you divided? You know, this is a, actually a common problem, though, in the church. This kind of thing can happen quite easily and quite often. In fact, look at verse 11 again, that word contentions. That word, if you want to write next to it, it means strife. And there was strife. And there was strife over their preferences. Here's what this can look like today. Strife over is the, the music, the worship music. It's too loud. That's one group. And then there's another group. The worship music, it's not loud enough. You know? There's another you know, group sometimes where it's like, the sanctuary's too dark. And there's another group, no, it's not dark enough. You know? And that type of thing, you know, that, that happens. And then it also happens over our giftings. You, know, you take somebody who has the gift of mercy, let's say. Mercy is just that you know, real compassionate heart for people. And, and, and so you find you know, people that are just hurting and always struggling. And the people with the gift of mercy are just drawn to them. You know, they're just drawn to want to care for them. And it's beautiful. And the, but, but oftentimes the people say, you know, we, we, need to just, we need more of that. We need, you know, people are just, some are so rigid. And we need to be you know, just so compassionate. And then you have other people that their gift is of evangelism. And this is what you'll find out with, if you ever get involved, you know, in the church, that you'll find out that whatever the person's gift is, that's what they're the most passionate about, and that's what they think the most important is. In fact, you talk to people that work in our children's ministry here, and it's like, that's the best ministry in the church. And I tend to agree with them in some ways. Uh, I've always said if I wasn't the pastor, that's where I would be. But, uh, you know, there's a tendency that we have, oh, well, this is the best ministry. Oh, so yeah. And we can get contentious over that. But the beauty of the body of Christ is this. In fact, Paul's going to talk about this in this letter. That the body of Christ is made up of many members that all have different functions. 
Many members that, that all have different, but different parts. And each one is functioning in a way that God has uniquely gifted them. And that's what makes the body what it's supposed to be. That's when the body is beautiful, when everybody is functioning according to how God has gifted them. But anytime we start to focus on one aspect of the body over another, divisions is a result of that. Now, this word divisions in the Greek is schemata, and although we derive our English word schisms from it, it, the Greek word literally means this, to tear or to rend. To tear apart is the idea. And here's what I want you to think about. Don't miss this. They were divided over good things. Missions, apologetics, The Holy Spirit, those are all good things. But the problem was they were trying to emphasize one over the other and it was causing this tearing apart to happen in the body there. And Paul's plea is that they would stop ripping each other apart because they're tearing up the body of Christ. Let me give you an analogy. I want you to picture a bride on her wedding day. Her makeup's all done. She's got her dress on. It's about 30 minutes before the the wedding is to start. And two of her bridesmaids all of a sudden start arguing with one another over which one should be the maid of honor. And it gets so contentious as they're arguing together that they start pulling on the bride and they literally rip her dress. Her dress gets ripped, I mean bad, I mean like ripped in apart and sleeves are missing and just, you know, and then they they, they try to fix it. They're pinning it all together, but it's obviously thrashed, this dress, it's shredded. Now picture as this bride comes walking down the aisle with her ripped up dress that's just been ripped to shreds. What's going to be the reaction of the audience? Well, there'll be some in the audience that are, that are gasping like, oh man, you know, poor girl, what, what happened to her? Look at that dress. Oh, that's so sad. Others will be thinking more along the terms of what's wrong with her? How dare she wear a dress like that on her wedding? That poor fellow, what is he getting himself into marrying that girl? But either way, people are going to be looking at that bride in a negative way, and they're going to be talking about that wedding for years to come, right? It's horrible. Well, Paul's saying, look, division tears the body of Christ. We're the body of Christ, but you know what? We've also been called, we're called the bride of Christ, we're called his, his bride, and, his bride and, and I want to take this analogy one step further and, and, and not, not wanting to get gross, but I'm going to kind of revert a little bit here to my youth pastor days. Um, let's take that same bride, same bridesmaids, and they start o- o- arguing over the same thing. But instead of just tearing and, and ripping at her, her dress, they start pulling you know, at her, her arms and, and they literally pull off her limbs, okay? So now she's bloody. I know it's gross, huh? Bloody, but just kind of the picture. You got the picture, okay? It's, you know, it's just gross. And, and, and now she comes walking down the aisle and it's like bridezilla, right? You know? It's like just gross as she's walking down. It's ugly. There's nothing attractive about her. And people are fleeing now. They're like, I, I, that's, oh, this is, this is bro, that's scary. Let's, let's get out of here. Let's get out of here instead of celebrating. Now, as gross as a picture as that is, I think that's a more accurate picture. It's a more accurate picture of what division does to the bride of Christ. It disfigures her. It disfigures Christ's bride. Instead of being something that people are drawn to, she becomes something that people run from. And that's why we're told in the book of Proverbs, in chapter 6, it says, there's six things that the Lord hates, 
Yes, seven that are an abomination to him. And the last thing on the list is this. One who sows discord among the brethren. The Bible doesn't say very often that God hates something. But one of the things that he hates, and he says this is an abomination, is those who sow discord among the brethren. And I just want to encourage you to remember that next time you're in a conversation and you start debating and getting heated about something that really isn't that important. And that type of thing can cause discord and division amongst the bride of Christ. So Paul says this, now I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and of the same judgment. He says, I plead with you that you all speak the same thing. You see, this was the problem. The Corinthians were talking, they were speaking, but they were talking about the wrong things. And that's how division gets started. Someone's speaking something that is not right and a seed gets planted and then somebody else comes along and and waters. Can you believe, Pastor Rob, can you believe he gave that stupid analogy, you know, about the bride getting her, you know, and and that kind of thing, all of a sudden it just starts, you know, it just goes and, and this division happens. Paul says, look, I want you to be perfectly joined together. The phrase joined together is a medical phrase used of knitting together bones that have been fractured. It's the joining together of a joint that has been dislocated. And the disunion is unnatural and it must be cured. And listen, 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 friends. This is the beauty of the gospel is that sinners get saved. And the beauty of the gospel is that it can take people of all different backgrounds, all different races, all different social standings, and it brings us together. And we are one in Jesus Christ. We are one under the cross. And instead of being torn apart, Paul pleads that they would be joined together, that they would be of, he says, the same mind. The same mind means the same understanding and the same judgment connected is, that word judgment is connected to the word gnosko, which is the word for knowing, and it's speaking of knowing something by experience. And this is what Paul is saying. This is what he's wanting them to understand, is that thinking rightly leads to speaking rightly, which leads to doing rightly. Thinking rightly leads to speaking rightly, which means to doing rightly. So Paul says, hey, I want you to speak the same thing. I want you to to be talking about the right thing. What's the right thing? Paul's going to lay out for them. That this is how the, the division, this is how, how they, they keep from being divided is they have the right message, the right method, and they remember the right means. And that's what we're going to see in the rest of this chapter. Paul's going to talk, he begins by talking to them about his experience with them in verse 14. He says, I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, Lest anyone should say that I had baptized in my own name. Yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanus. And besides that, I do not know whether I baptized any other. I, I, it just, I think this is kind of funny verse. You know, Paul's like, you know, I, I didn't baptize I didn't, you guys. I baptized, you know, Crispus and Gaius. And oh yeah, you know, I baptized somebody from the household of Stephanus. But after that, you know, I, I, I didn't baptize anybody. And, you know, picture Henry sitting there, you know, and he's, he's like, but Paul, you baptized me. It was like the best day of my life. You know, we went down to the water and afterwards the family was all there and we had cake and it was awesome and you don't even remember baptizing me, you know? I just think that's kind of funny. Um, (laughs) But the, the reason, Paul says, is this. Verse 17. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Not with the wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of no effect. Wisdom is a key word in this first section, as it appears 16 times in chapters 1 and 2. 
Now, wisdom is the right application of knowledge. You see, you can know something, but you're not wise until you do the right thing with that knowledge. That's what wisdom is. Wisdom is knowledge applied. And part of the problem with the Corinthians is they were functioning in the fashion of the wisdom of the world. You see, in in the same way in the Grecian culture, they were divided over their philosophies and philosophers, That's how the Grecian world was divided. And so the church is following the wisdom of the world here and being divided over their leaders. And one of the things that Paul wants them to understand is that God's house is not like man's house. And God's ways, like Pete was praying tonight, is not like man's ways. And God's wisdom is not like man's wisdom. So how do we stay joined together? That's what Paul's pleading with them, that they would be joined together. They remember three things. They remember the message, the method, and the means. Let's start with the message. Verse 17 says, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of no effect. Paul says, look, I came with a message And the message is pretty simple. It's the gospel. What's the gospel? Gospel means good news. And the good news is this, is that for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. the, The good news is that Jesus left heaven and came to this earth so that he could go to a cross where he would die in our place, die on the cross to pay the price for our sins, and then three days later, rise again from the dead so that whoever would believe in him, they could be saved and reconciled with God. That's the gospel. And Paul says in verse 18, for the message of the gospel is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. Paul says, look, I came to preach a message. And the message was a simple message, but it was a powerful message. But it's also a message that to the unbeliever, it seems like a foolish message. Think about it. To the unbeliever, to the unsaved person, the work, that, the idea that we can be saved through the work of, of a crucified man seems foolish. You know, to us, here in the 20th century, that kind of seems like, you know, that means a lot to us. We, we think of the cross and that type of thing. But in the first century, just to put it in context, it would be like saying the message of the cross would be like saying the same as, you know, the message of the electric chair. Now, that seems kind of odd, right? Wait a minute. Your Savior is a guy that got fried in the electric chair? I mean, that's what the crucifixion was in that day. What message, this is how the Grecian mind would think, what message does a cruel, humiliating, unrelenting unrelenting instrument of death have? It was the, the great Roman statesman Cicero who said this, the cross, it speaks of that which is so shameful, so horrible, it should never be mentioned in polite society. You shouldn't even talk about it. It's so morbid. It's so gross. It's just so hideous. He says, if we were witnesses to the trial of Jesus, when the crowd was shouting out, crucify him, crucify him, if we had our wits about us, we would have shouted back, don't crucify him. If you must execute this man, do it honorably. Let him die the death of a dignified man, but don't expose him to the horror and the humiliation of hanging on a cross. And so to the, to the Gentile mind, the idea of a savior on a cross, it was foolish. And the idea that I don't have to do anything but believe, and that makes me right with this Jewish God, that sounds foolishness to them because, you know, they, they were always trying to figure out ways to appease the Grecian gods, the Greek gods. And you think about this deeper, even deeper still. And you think about, okay, God makes this world, creates man, 
in this world, knowing full well that man is going to rebel against him, which means that they're going to be separated from him. The very first two human beings are going to do that. And God knows this before he even makes the world and makes them. And he knows that, that this is going to just send the whole human race in a downward spiral of sin and separation from God. And the only way that he's going to be able to rescue man from you know their plight is he's going to have to send his only begotten son to leave heaven and come to this earth and become a man and go to a cross and die in their place so he can rise again from the dead in order if they believe in him would give them life. Again, I mean, I think even in modern, that sounds kind of foolish. Like, that's a weird story, right? But it's the story. It's exactly what God did. And that's why Paul said this. He said that God's wisdom is different from our wisdom. I like the way Isaiah put it in Isaiah 55 eight, He says, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. The message of the gospel is foolishness to the unbeliever. But Paul also says, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. That simple message of the gospel has the power to transform a person's life. That's why Paul says in Romans, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. It has the power to transform lives. I want you to note though, that Paul says there in that verse, notice he says, to those who are being saved. You might want to underline that, being saved. And that gives us the idea that salvation is progressive. What do I mean by that? Well, it's true that justification, it's been called the miracle of the moment. And the idea is this, when you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, in that moment, the moment that you put your faith in, in Jesus Christ, you are justified. The word justified means that you are declared righteous. That's how God sees you. God looks at you and he says, man, you are righteous in my eyes. Justification, the miracle of the moment. But then sanctification, it's been said, is the process of a lifetime. You see, although we're saved the moment that we give our lives to Christ, we spend the rest of our lives in this process of being refined, this process of, being, of growing, this process of being set apart, this process of God working in our hearts in order to make us more like Jesus. It's the power of God unto salvation for, for those who are being saved, Paul says. Verse 19, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Now, this is a quotation from Isaiah 29, verse 14. And this is what Paul is showing is that in spiritual matters, God opposes the wisdom of man. That he will destroy the wisdom of the wise and not bow down before it. But understand, Paul is not condemning learning or education here. But what he's saying is this, that, that by themselves, learning, education by themselves are useless for obtaining spiritual wisdom or obtaining spiritual salvation. He continues that. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made the made foolish the wisdom of this world. I think this is such a pertinent idea for our culture right now, what Paul just said there. Where are the debaters? Where are the scribes? Where are the thinkers? Where are the psychiatrists? Where are the you know, psychologists? Where are the political pundits of the day? What have they done for your culture? If you've been watching TV over the last few months, I think you found that no one knows what's going on. <laughs> no one knows how to fix anything. No one knows what is right. I mean, one day it's like, you need to wear a mask. The next day, don't wear a mask. And, you know, one day, oh, this is essential. The next day, you know, you have Dr. Fauci saying, they actually don't work. You know, and it's like, everybody's divided on the whole race issue. And everybody's divided. Everybody's trying to figure out, what are we doing? And the more we listen, the more we understand, no one has a clue. 
No one knows what is going on. No one has the answer to the problems. But listen, listen to me, friends. You know what the answer is? It's the gospel. It's the gospel. You know, concerning this whole race issue, the gospel is the answer. Why? Because the gospel tells us this, that all men have been created in the image of God. That all men and women have been created by God to be light bearers of who he is. That was God's original plan. But sin came and marred the image. Sin wrecked the creation And like I said, but God, seeing the mess that we had made of his world, so loved the world that and every, you know, person and every race and every, you know, tribe in the world that he says, I'm going to send my son on a rescue mission to go rescue man in the world and save them from their sins so that I can restore them to what they were intended to be. And it's at the cross that we're all unified. That we're all sinners saved by grace. The cross is the answer. The gospel is the answer. Suddenly in that, you know, we put aside, you know, looking and and seeing, you know, people for their color or seeing people for their status or anything like that. And we see, hey, we're all equal in the eyes of God. And he loves every single one of us. That's the the message of the gospel. And if we would treat each other, you know, in that gospel-centric type of way, these issues wouldn't exist. You know, we take the issue today. Another problem is man is all mixed up about his identity. And so you have people looking for their identity and their sexuality or looking for their identity and their pursuits or looking for their identity in their careers or they're looking for their identity and, you know, validation from others. The gospel tells us that man was made by God and for God and we find our identity as men and women created by him and for him. And that's, that's why Jesus came, was to restore us back to that place and back to that purpose. Hey, I exist not for me, but for him. The problems of the world get really, really simple when we see them in light of the gospel. Paul says here in verse 21, for since the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God. So the wisdom of man doesn't help us know God or our purpose at all is what Paul is saying. It pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached though to save those who believe. For the Jews request a sign and the Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. So here, I said, the, the, the first thing that they needed to realize in being joined together was that there was a message, the gospel. That's what joins them together. That's what unites them. That they're all brought together unto Jesus and Jesus isn't to be divided. What's the method? The method is preaching. Paul says, we preach Christ crucified. To the Jews, a stumbling block. Perhaps this is better understood as an offense or even a scandal. And it was scandalous to the Jews to think, our Messiah? Jesus can't be our Messiah because our Messiah doesn't suffer. They ignored all those passages in the Old Testament that talked about how the Messiah was going to come and suffer. So it was scandalous to them. He can't be the Messiah. He's not going to crucify the Messiah, even though... In the Old Testament, we're told that the Messiah would hang on a tree. Cursed is everyone who hangs upon a tree. And Jesus took the curse, became the curse for us, so that we could be set free. And so he says, but we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block and to the Greeks foolishness, but to those who are called both Jews and Gentiles Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. That's what brings them together. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. So the message of Jesus Christ and him crucified is what brings us together. Brings us together into the family of God. It unites us as sinners saved by grace. And we find our beauty, we find our purpose in seeing how we're united in the cross. And that's the message that answers most of the problems that man in his wisdom, even to this day, is still trying to figure out. But because man in his wisdom leaves God out, the problems just get bigger and bigger and more complicated and more complicated. And that's exactly what we see happening right now in our world, isn't it? 
we're leaving God out and the problems are just getting bigger and bigger and, and, and it's, you know, it starts here and it just keeps growing and growing and they're adding more and more to it and it gets more and more complicated. But the message of the gospel has the power to transform lives and transform cities and transform entire cultures. So the method is preaching What's the means? Look at verse 26. For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. You know, the same's still true. Just look around the room, okay? That's a good description of us right there. Not many wise, not many mighty, not many noble. How many of you in this room are listed in the who's who of America? We're more like in the, who's he, you know? (laughs) Who's that guy, you know, type of thing. Verse 27, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things that are mighty and the base things of the world. The the base things is those who have of low birth, the hillbillies, the hicks. And the things which are despised, God has chosen, and the things which are not, to bring to nothing the things that are. So this is God's means of bringing about this message, is to deliver it through normal people, like you and I. You know, we have a tendency, I think, to to think, oh, it's a great message. We need to find an influencer. You know, someone with... A billion followers on their Instagram account. You know, get them start posting and that's going to be, you know, the answer. We need to find somebody who's a great orator. We need to find somebody. God says, no, I want to just use normal people. Normal people reaching out to their people in their sphere of influence. You know, if we as a church, if we could lead as a church, let's say, In a year's time, a million people to Christ. Think about that. A million people. How long would it take to reach the entire world? You know, there's 7 billion people on the planet. So you can ask Siri if you want, you know, what's 1 million divided by 7 billion? You know, 7,000. Take us 7,000 years to reach the entire world. But you know, if one person leads somebody to Christ, and then those two people lead two more people to Christ, and then those two people lead two more people to Christ, and that just keeps going on and on and on. You know, the entire world, seven billion people can be reached with the gospel in 34 years. It's incredible. You can do that math. And that's what Paul's saying. Hey, God chose the fool. This is the means. This, is, this was his plan. I'm going to work through ordinary people for this reason, verse 29, that no flesh should glory in his presence, but of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us the wisdom of God and the righteousness and sanctification and redemption. That is, as it is written, that he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. Jesus picked 12 uneducated guys who were untrained in the rabbinical schools and those 12 guys turned the world upside down. He told those 12 guys, I want you to take the gospel to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the world. And here we are sitting tonight in Vista, California in 2020 and you know what? This is the uttermost parts of the world. From Israel, okay? And the gospel has made its way all the way here. That's the means. That's what God is doing. He's not looking for the most talented, the the brightest, the most scholarly. Listen, he's looking for people who are available and faithful. That's what he's looking for. People who are available and faithful. You see, as I said, wisdom is knowledge applied. And it's the smart person who realizes that in spiritual matters that he's nothing and can do nothing. 
But if anything good is going to happen, it's going to be done through Jesus. Now, as we move into chapter 2, and we're just going to do the very first part of this, Paul uses himself here as an example of the very thing, as an illustration of the very thing that he's talking about. He says this, And brethren, when I came to you, I did not come with excellence of speech. So Paul didn't come as a philosopher or salesman. or you know, he, didn't, he wasn't coming to try to impress them with his oratory ability. But he came as a witness. I came to you declaring to you the testimony. That's what a witness does. They give a testimony, the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in the demonstration of the spirit and of power. Paul's confidence, this is what he's saying, his confidence in coming to them wasn't in his speaking ability, but it was in the power of the gospel to transform lives. That's what he's saying here. For this reason, that your faith should be in the wisdom of men, should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Paul's own ministry among them was a testimony to the power of the message and the method and the means for which God would work. Now, this doesn't mean that God can't use people who are intelligent. Don't, don't, don't misunderstand me there. doesn't mean that. Paul was a very, very sharp guy. I mean, they today, law schools study the book of Romans that he wrote because of just how incredible it's put together. But what Paul's saying, I chose to keep it really simple because I understand that the, the, the power is not in the message, excuse me, in, in the messenger, but the power is in the message. And our problem is, is we so often get, we get hung up with the messengers. You know, we're like kids. You ever have this happen when your kids were younger? You, you know, give them a, a gift for Christmas and you wrap it up in a really, you know, colorful box and, and they open it up and we had this happen this past Christmas with my grandson Josiah. We got, I can't remember what it was, but we got him something and he opened up and all he wanted to do was to play with the box. He was just enamored with the package. It's like, here's this cool little thing. And he's like, oh, this box is so awesome. And, you know, that's us. We get enamored with the packaging and we forget about what's inside. The message is, is the power. Paul says, you know, I chose, purposely chose to keep it simple. You know, this was the beauty to me of Pastor Chuck. Pastor Chuck, as a human being, was incredibly smart. So intelligent. I mean, he could talk with anyone about anything. Prior to going to ministry, he was training to be a doctor. So he knew all about human anatomy. Um, he was learned in history and philosophy and astronomy and etymology, the study of bugs. I mean, he could talk for hours about all of that stuff. You name it, he was versed in it, but he never, ever flaunted that. Never flaunted that. Instead, he taught on such a simple level that it connected with a vast group of people. And the message of the gospel was so powerful that it, it, it impacted an entire generation of people and helped start a revival that we know as the Jesus People Movement. That's how God used him. And you know, I'll never forget this. Because I was at a um, conference, it was called a Preach the Word conference, and, and um, Greg Laurie had put it on, and, and he had some very, very well-known pastors that were speaking at this thing, and every single one of them were just really eloquent teachers. And each one of them gave this flawless message. And it was just the type of thing, like it was just the best analogies, you know, not... not Brides getting torn apart. I mean, you know, the best analogies, you know, and uh, just really, really awesome, just really put together and just, and a bunch of us, me and my friends that were, that were there and, you know, kind of felt like maybe God was calling us to be a minister. We, we, we heard each of these three guys teach and our response was afterwards, I could never do that. I could never do that. 
God obviously can't use me because I cannot talk like that person, you know. And then Chuck, he was the last guy to speak. And he got up and he was teaching. And he did something I've never, ever seen him do before or since. And I almost wonder, I wanna, in heaven, I want to ask him, hey, was, was that on purpose? Because he was teaching and in the middle of his message, he literally did this. He literally like stopped and he goes, I forgot something. And he started like flipping through his notes. Like it was this awkward pause kind of moment. You know, everybody's just kind of like going like, you know, like what in the world's happening right now? And why is he doing that? And he's flipping through and he goes, oh, here it is. This is what I wanted to say. And he, and it was like the weirdest thing. Like I, like I said, never seen him do anything like that before. But you know what happened? A bunch of us were like, I can do that. <laughs> Maybe God can use me, you know? And I love that about him. Keep it simple. That's what you saw you say. Keep it simple, stupid, you know? Well, let's wrap this up. Paul says, hey, avoid divisions, tearing apart the bride of Jesus. Keep the main thing, the main thing, the main thing. Listen, listen, all my Fox News friends and CNN friends. Politics is not the main thing, okay? It's Jesus. Keep the main thing the main thing, not social issues. We need to see all of that stuff that everybody's getting all worked up right now. We need to see it through the lens of the kingdom. We need to see it through the the, the lens of of the heart of Jesus and, and why he came. The gospel is this. It's who Jesus is. It's what he has done. It's who we are in him. And it's what he is going to do through us, what he wants to do through us, and what he is going to do when he comes back. And puts this all right. And if we keep that focus, we will be okay. If we remember that, God works through normal people like us. We remember that. You know what we're going to do? Instead of being comparing ourselves, instead of, you know, latching, we're going to be each other's cheerleaders. Like, go out, yeah, you know, that type of thing. We're going to be cheering each other on and, and not seeking to divide over gifts and preferences. And you know what? If we do that, we will be an attractive bride and a wonder to the world. As the world looks and goes, how, how do those guys get along? Look how different they are. They're different in every way. Socially, economically, racially, but yet they, they're, they're connected. How in the world does that happen? And we will have a contagious effect to answer the questions that the world is asking today. And it's through that the gospel lived out through our lives that lives will be transformed that cities can be transformed and entire cultures can be transformed. Amen? Let's pray together. Lord, I just thank you for your word. I thank you, Lord, for just how relevant it is that a letter written to a church over 2,000 years ago having problems with division could speak so pointedly to the divisions that we see in our culture today. So Lord, help us. Help us, Lord, to keep the main thing the main thing. Help us, Lord, to see things the way that you do. Help us, Lord, to keep our focus on you and help us, God, to understand and really believe that the message of the gospel is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. That the, the method in which you want to touch this world and save this world and help this world is through the preaching of the gospel. And the means through which you want to do it is through the lives of normal people just like us who would make ourselves available to you and would be faithful to let you work in us. So God, do that work in us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.